I mean, failure is an interesting thing as well. And I think you also have to look at culture of your team and, and to a point say that a certain level of failure at times is okay on certain things. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I'm stoked to welcome Oliver Nutt today as my guest. Oliver and I have some really interesting chats that we want to share with you all on cam so um oliver please if you don't mind do an introduction for the audience who doesn't know you yet absolutely yeah thank you and uh, thanks for having me today and um and hey everyone i'm uh, oliver nuts i'm the uh, cmo for a company called general dynamics uh, information technology we are a thirty thousand person company about nine billion dollars in revenue and we develop technology solutions in areas like uh, cloud, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, uh, digital modernization. And we do that for mostly the government sector. So for the Department of Defense, for government agencies, and also the intelligence uh, community. GDIT uh, is part of a, a Fortune 100 company called General Dynamics, which has a pretty diverse portfolio of products and, and services. So we build everything from uh, Gulfstream business jets to tanks, nuclear submarines. And then, of course, is this pretty uh, large technology business, which I uh, lead the marketing efforts for as well. Yeah, I think technology is becoming everything. It's like embedded everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, do you get to, you know, duke it out with Microsoft and uh, Google over, you know, cloud contracts? Because that's that's been so, so wonderful to read about <laughs> the battles. So. Yeah. So uh, fortunately, with our, our position and what we do, we actually work with all of the commercial cloud providers, so you know, Mike. Yeah, you get to st- you get to sidestep that fun uh, talking to Congress and <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so yeah. yeah, we we mainly just work with those companies on how we we take those technologies to to our customers. So um, yeah, and you and I were talking uh, off mic, and I think a story I'd love to dive into and share is, is about rebranding, and you got to be in the midst of, uh, first of all, a major M&A type of, of situation, a merger of two companies that you know made a much larger company, and then having to do the full global rebrand after that. So you got 30,000 people and a major parent you know, organization. And I'd love to dig into that because what was interesting about it was that the same type of thing can happen for any size of of org and the, the, the way that we think about um, rebranding and, and marketing and brand in, in general, you know, seems to have some really enduring lessons. So I'll let you tell a little bit of the story, whatever, uh, whatever you you could share, and then we could kind of pick it apart a little bit. So. Yeah, sure. Sure. So yeah, it's been a, 
a really interesting couple of years for the for the company. And this this major change for the organization organization happened back in 2018. We made a, an acquisition of a company called CSRA. Uh, it was a, a multi-billion dollar acquisition. It doubled the size of our, our technology business in terms of revenue and in terms of employees. So it was a, a pretty major, major change for the for the company. And no Though General Dynamics acquired CSRA, it was very much of a merger because you, of the equal size of these these two entities. What was interesting for me at that time as well, I just uh, it was just after the acquisition that that I was appointed into my current role, uh, so the CMO. So it was a it was a major a major career moment for me, but also at the same time, I was I was faced with with how do you bring these two very distinct brands who had their own brand uh, equity, their own brand qualities. So how do you bring these two brands together into something new as part of this this integration to to effectively represent this new company we were were becoming? So just just the complexity behind it was pretty significant. You know, at the same time, we were selling off parts of our business, reshaping our portfolio as well. So our whole value proposition was changing for for this new company. And, and as you mentioned, of course, as well, it was not only doing a rebrand at this kind of scale of bringing two companies together. I also had to consider or the team had to consider the the larger general dynamics brand and how this, this new brand identity is going to going to fit in with with that. So it was just a, a, an amazing project to take on, um, but very important as well as part of the integration in pulling these two cultures together and, and uniting our employees behind something right. new. Yeah, I remember going through similar types of experiences and, you know, down to the ultimately like, all right, everybody, you got to throw away all your pens and your koozies and (laughs) all the stuff because it can't you change your T-shirt. And, you know, and it it was kind of funny, like being on the ground level of it. But it makes a lot of sense when you when you think about that, you know, sort of global identity and and how do you pull together uh, a unified culture, particularly, you know, two different companies one you know one more tech fast moving and one you know sort of like well we're the big behemoth and you know we get to buy people i mean there's all types of like just cultural stuff and uh, and then the i i love to think about it how do you make a you know it's like a brand that is strong it means something but also like now these days you know like everything you do could potentially like offend someone and it has to be representative of something so big and sort of differentiated but yet you don't really have a lot of wiggle room you know so you got some colors that you can use and you got to think about different ways to to make it stand out Uh, but then you're also corporate and you know you don't it's not like you can go crazy and use you know a graffiti artist or something like that so i mean just it must be wild to be in those meetings it is it is and um and i think that's why the process is so so important and you know, I think most CMOs have talked about rebranding process. You know, you go through the research phase, you go through the creating your your visual identity and your verbal identities, how you're going to look, how you're going to sound. And then you, of course, activate the brand after that with a campaign. And that's a fairly standard, standard process. But I think uh, to do it successfully, the most important thing is really to look at it from an inclusion point of view about how you set up the people that are making the decisions around where that brand direction is going to go and making sure you're buying. I think it's just so, so important. And I think largely ours was, has, was very successful because we created this, 
this structure where we got inputs from these from from our employees from different parts of the company from from both csra who we had acquired and gdit and that really helped by having them as part of that that full uh, process really to uh, to to help create this brand moving forward and and ultimately help build that that um, advocacy internally behind what we were trying to do but to your point you know it's hugely complex you know your different opinions even over the the visuals you know in which direction go in and and how do you how do you differentiate and uh, you made a really good point about how far you can stretch things within a corporate environment respect your your brand equity in our case uh, for for a company with a very rich heritage so we had to respect the business unit so a lot, a lot of complexity to work through but that that importance yeah. of inclusivity was just really really vital and so you had to go and decide almost like which stakeholders should be able to put their words in and how heavy how heavily you weight each of those stakeholder groups and you know you can't include everybody the 30,000 opinions is is basically just like well we're going to end up with a blue box thanks everybody you know and, but i mean i can't even imagine sorting that out and you know it's like uh it, it was it a surveying kind of process or you know sort of focus groups or you know what what does this look like kind of everything really you mentioned. I mean, when I look at the research phase, we did everything from surveys with our customers. I sat behind a glass screen and listened to customers talk about our brand and our industry and our competitors. So, so that gave a viewpoint. And then on the internal side, we created these different levels. So we had a, an executive leadership team was really bought into this process. And we called this the sort of ultimately the decision-making team. But underneath them, there was a group that were feeding inputs in into uh, into the brand strategy. So it was a kind of an agile approach where we were mm-hmm. we were testing concepts and ideas, different yeah. levels of the of the organization. But obviously, trying to do it at speed because we we needed to get this new brand rolled out. The longer it sits out there without one, was not necessarily great for our customers, not necessarily great for our employees. So there was a speed yeah. challenge in 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 doing that. So, did you ever have like the whole like uh, I probably can't you know I can't please everybody you know so therefore I can't please anybody you know it's like it's kind of feels like no matter what color you picked or imagery or or any any wording you know it must just be like endless sort of feedback I guess you had a trust on being like empowered then to ultimately just make the call right? absolutely yeah so th- there were certainly those points where uh, during the process you're you're hitting. Uh, hitting a few roadblocks and you just can't get this consensus. <laughs> what worked really well for us was the, the branding partner we had, who was an external agency, and and they were invaluable as part of the process because they actually created these different visual territories, as they called it for us. So actually, they were pretty pretty extreme. And what that did was really helped kind of eliminate certain looks and feels when I look at the visual side of things. And then really focuses in on a on a direction and and where we wanted to, to go. So it's like a mood board kind of thing. Exactly. And there, there were three very different ones, and and one really stretched us, and it was like it just doesn't feel right. We're going to struggle to manage that over a long term. And of course, I'm looking at managing the brand right beyond just the launch for for years. So I certainly had a, had a strong opinion, and unfortunately. Uh, a, le- a leadership team had put a lot of trust in me as well to lead that process and. Um, and help narrow in when we were hitting roadblocks. So, sure, sure. And I'd love to talk about you know because I I work with a lot of services firms and it's hard to brand 
services because there's no picture of a product. There, there's concepts about it. But most of what you do is like sort of human beings working on stuff. And when you start to feature human beings in imagery, you have to deal with diversity and inclusion and ages and different, you know, genders. And I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And you kind of just go like, you know what? I don't even want to buy a photo or take to do a photo shoot. So forget about humans. Okay. So we don't have products. We don't have humans. What do we have pictures of? <laughs> and that's really hard. Yeah. Creating that visual side is really difficult. And, um, for us, uh, I remember we looked at this uh, as part of our research process, something called the Sea of Sameness. And this was this graphic that essentially put all of the players in our industry or the major players in our industry up on a, on a single graphic and looked at how well we were differentiating ourselves you know, from a verbal point of view, from a visual point of view. And to your point, you're trying to brand services, right? There's nothing really tangible you can hold on to. So... All the same companies were using you know, Padlock to describe cybersecurity, for example, and the the matrix numbers that we we talked about before. So, you know, I think that really got our stakeholder group thinking, hey, we need to do something different here from a visual perspective. And um, uh, hence the direction we went into in terms of using kind of more nature imagery that shows gravitas and evokes emotion versus, you know, some of the pictures of servers and things like that, that was very traditional. In <laughs> right. um, yeah, server racks and, you know, all right, the stuff and then like some creepy looking character trying to <laughs> chisel their way into it or, you know, I mean, it's so bad, like the imagery around cybersecurity is, it's so pervasive. So yeah, and cloud, you know, and it, like, there's so many conceptual things now. It's like, as, as products and services become more abstract, like, how do we even draw attention to this? And I love that sea of sameness thing because, you know, the joke is like all corporate brands, like in technology and, you know, sort of anything around this, like blue, blocky, grayscale, you know, it's just, there's, oh, it's sort of just, it's all about, you know, oh, you can trust us and, you know, we're your advisor and, you know, all this. I mean, but if you put them all next to each other, it's pretty, it's pretty ridiculous that, uh, there isn't even a round round corner to be found, and uh, it's some kind of blue, gray, black, <laughs> you know, extra white space. Like, I mean, it must be so hard to stand out. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, no. So we, we you know, we were pretty hard at, at looking at that, and I think it made it very visual, right, for the for the stakeholders to see we need to do something mm. something different. Um, I noticed that there's a lot of focus on, uh, and everybody can look at this if they're interested at gdit.com and. There's a focus on the human part of the business being the word heroes. Is, was that something that was a big part of this experience? Yes. Yeah, so when we looked at it, we, we looked at the type of work we do and and the, the portfolio is huge. You know, we've got 4,000 projects that, that we deliver for our, for our clients. And we looked at the type of work they're doing, you know, whether that's in the healthcare space, um, you know, with uh, some of the IT work we're doing, we also do research and things like into things like brain injuries, for example, where we support, you know, some very sensitive programs from a, um, and projects from a cybersecurity perspective. So we came up with this concept of these, these everyday heroes that are effectively behind, uh, behind, often behind computer screens or on the front lines with our, with our customers who are, are, are doing really, really obviously critical work for, for the nation and of course for, for our national security as well. So 
there is certainly a people element to our brand and, and ultimately is our people and what they do, which are um, uh, the essence of our, of our brand. So we, we looked at them and talking about those in the, in the context of kind of everyday, everyday heroes. So you don't really know what they're doing behind the scenes, but it's really important work. And I think what people maybe don't often think about is, you know, branding is often promoted as a, a marketing and, you know, sort of lives on, you know, almost like the customer side of the business. Like this is how we sell. We want people to buy things. Uh, but increasingly, and I bet this happened even, you know, in this, this conversation, like this is so much about recruiting and retention and culture and, you know, all yes. that, that stuff, like the affiliation of wanting to, uh, give my labor assets to a particular brand. I mean, it comes up so much now it, and you never really used to see, you know, HR and marketing even at the same table, you know, in the same meetings. And I, I think that that was a missed opportunity that is now coming to the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the employment branding side of things is just so, so important. And I'm glad you raised that. Cause I think, like you said, a lot of people look at marketing and branding as just this, this, uh, you know, creative exercise that your marketing department wants to do, and it uh, can be perceived as a bit, bit fluffy, but the, the impact it can have on the business is really, really important. You know, when I look at our situation, when you're integrating these companies, trying to unite two companies together behind something, what we did with the brand was was a major milestone, actually, I would say, in our integration. And I, I know our, our president, the company, and she was really key to the success of how we how we got this executed certainly believes it was a major milestone a major moment for us but to your point on the employment side you know it is so critical now from um you know attracting people first to apply for jobs at your company relies on you telling stories about your organization about what you do why you're different and then you can get into the fundamentals of how people apply for jobs there the, the actual experiences they're having with your brand, you know, how easy it is it for them to, to apply? What was that application journey? How was their onboarding? These are all touch points that, um, you know, marketing communications and, um, you know, you're looking at those experiences really, really closely. So. Right. Yeah. And, uh, external communications is so much more a big deal than in the last decade than it ever was. There weren't, there weren't any vectors or channels to communicate on. And now, now there are dozens. I mean, you used to just be like, well, we could put out a press release or, you know, we can hang out some marketing and like, great, you know, we our customer voice is taken care of because nobody else gets to say anything anywhere else. Now you've got dozens of potential channels across social and, you know, like media. And I mean, just everybody's a publisher. Uh, it's vastly more, complicated to think about how you you message now you don't get this one nice clean funnel that you get to throw your you know press releases out the door and um one place one phone number for the reporters to call <laughs> you know it's like uh it's so so much more complicated to manage brand via communications now is that is that an evolution that you were able to see then across your your career where communications didn't even used to be a thing? I don't think anybody used to talk that way. No, I, I think, uh, yeah, I've certainly seen it shift in, uh, you know, in, in my 15 years of experience in marketing communications. I mean, in terms of, especially when, when you're looking at brands at scale, you know, how they used to be managed and how, how the such tight control mechanisms which were in place. 
say 15 years ago is so different to today. I think from a leadership point of view, how your teams operate have to be so different now to how they used to be. And and to definitely brand at the kind of scale, empowerment and agility are so important. You're trying to control or manage the brand across, like you say, all these different different channels, but you've got to move faster than you've ever moved before. So how you, how you're structuring your team and how you're you're um, empowering different components of your organization to do that job is is so so important because there just isn't the time there was say you know 10 or 15 years ago to run all of the processes you might have done to to review a communication so it's uh, it's changed it's just changed um changed rapidly yeah and buyers are, are you know hiring people and really like if i look at your team page now like what's the first thing i'm going to do i'm going to go to linkedin and look at every individual profile of everybody you said was a leader. If I'm thinking of working for you, if I'm thinking of buying from you, like the, especially in like a big B2B context, like people want to experience the individual personalities behind a brand. And, and that's even more terrifying because then you have like, you know, sort of all these just like attack vectors or <laughs> risk vectors of if anyone here says anything bad that is maybe off color, like it's going to come back on the brand. I mean, I don't even know how you guys like sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, you right, you know, there is definitely more risks the bigger the organization. And, uh, and that's really where um, you've got to rely on your on your culture and your leaders, I think, throughout a company to create the right teams to to to, to work so closely with their um, relative organizations to help help live and breathe that culture you're, you're creating, if you like, at the top of the organization. So, and then obviously, you know, obviously there's always always risk and things happen in big companies, which you 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 obviously have to respond to. And things happen in every company. Huh? In every company. I guess like. Uh, the buck just stops at a different level, right? <laughs> it does. Yeah. So talk about your path, you know, getting to this. I, I imagine there's a lot of people that aspire to be the CMO of so $30,000 global, you know, organizations. So, you know, how, how did that happen and how did you, you know, get there and what were those experiences and, and lessons learned? Because I, I think that's exciting. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So it's a great question, really. I mean, I never envisaged necessarily. Uh, I'm obviously from the UK. You can tell from my accent. I never necessarily had a plan that I was going to end up in the in the US and and work for this kind of type of technology company doing what I what I do. I've always, from my point of view, had a had a plan in terms of a relatively short term plan for my next steps in my career and where I wanted to get to, and then really just did my did my best really in each of those those uh, jobs and learn lessons and and constantly just try to to uh, just look around me really for for how I could evolve as a as a as a as a leader and I've managed to work for some some great companies I think working for Canon originally at the start of my marketing career was was really influential you know learning the pure principles of taking products to market for example uh, as managing product portfolios and then um, just moving through management and then into into leadership roles. But I think ultimately it was just seizing opportunities in all the organizations I've been been in and uh, willing to take some risk at certain points in 
in, in time. So yeah, I think you can only ever look though a little bit uh, a little bit ahead. You could you can't necessarily plan uh, ten years ahead. Um, you just got to do your best in each of your your roles and be prepared to take some risks along the way. Being some, I don't know, gosh, 23 years now into my career, I remember my first job being sat down by uh, a partner at uh, at the time, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and, and being told, you're going to go look back and think, you know, you'll evaluate your career in three-year stints, and you'll say, was that three years successful or was it not? And I remember thinking, uh, you know, like, three years like that's forever you know <laughs> but i mean to this day like i don't remember anything else about that guy or who he was but i remember that statement and it it kind of played out that way for me and that you have these just big long steps and sometimes you slog along but you like sort of have to grab onto the next rung you know, and, and pull up and uh, not every lesson is an awesome lesson or, or enjoyable, but um, some of them, you know, turn out to be uh, pretty impactful. Can you point to any pivots, like major points where you go like that had to happen or, you know, I'm really glad that I met that person or, you know, like I think because if I try to train or coach anybody, it's like pay attention to the major opportunities that come around and and the people that you meet and because it's going to come back around to you so i always like to kind of poke into that and say you know what really mattered along the way yeah I, there's there's probably been a couple of kind of pivotal moments for me in in my career and and it's um i think partly when i was working for general dynamics in the in the uk and um, preparing to make a move to the to the US, and it was a step up in terms of in terms of level, in terms of of leadership. And I think probably everybody has these moments where you you question are you are you ready for that next that next step? And as I reflect looking back on it, you you might not think you're ready for that, but someone has seen something in you, and you just gotta gotta seize that opportunity. And actually get pretty comfortable with being uncomfortable because I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of what you learn in a new job uh, or uh, as you move up the ladder happens when you're in that in that job. So I think for me that was a major transition when I when I got moved from the UK to a much bigger role in the in the US. But making that kind of change and taking that leap of faith then prepared me for the next the next big step, which was. Uh, you know, getting this the, the CMO position, you know, three years ago, and taking on just this this much bigger challenge, both from having to build a much larger organization than I'd built prior to, to, to that, and then taking on the, this in that at that time that this branding project, which was obviously was obviously probably the largest, well, certainly was the largest marketing and branding initiative of, of my career. So. But yeah, so I think they were two kind of really pivotal, pivotal moments for me. But it just had to have uh, have faith. And I, I think you know when I'm trying to coach people, it's the importance of what I call your your mentors, your direct mentors, and then what I call your passive mentors, which is people around you that you can observe and learn from. And that can be good and bad things, right? And and it's just being open, uh, open minded as you move up the ladder, in in my opinion, and, and take on more responsibility just to constantly just be learning from from the environment around you yeah that's interesting uh the the passive yeah i like that it's you kind of always have to have your radar on you know that you're paying attention to those things and that feeling of not being 
ready. Did you experience that as like people talk about like uh, it's imposter syndrome? It's like, you know, like I'm really not like that great. It's cool that they want to push me in there. But I mean, there's there's a lot of fear to that, you know, and I think I don't know how you get past that other than like really, really being uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think it just goes back to that point of getting com- uh, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I, I think there's probably, you know, anybody who's at the you know, CEOs of, of companies that have not at points, you know, questioned whether they're ready to do something or not. And um, uh, what I do think there is, is often there's someone behind you promoting you to move forward into that role and they are they're seeing that you've already got those 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 abilities so you've uh, got to get yourself i think into into that mindset that you can you can um, you're ready to make that next uh, step right right and when you have to manage a very very large organization and you start to and this this happens you know i think faster than people expect like even in, in a smaller company context you'll start to have to essentially manage managers and leaders who have people under them who maybe even have people under them and that first time that you have an org that's so big that you're like I don't really know the people who work for me anymore you know like you've left that one two room type of scenario and it's really weird you know to to learn how to build structure around like a role and not you don't really know the people there you have to train the trainer and you know manage the manager I wonder what skills you developed around that because you're in a very large org now. Yeah, so I think, um, and, and I think, yeah, I love the way you kind of put that really because it's. I think it's a big difference to you know managing people, leading teams, and then leading um, organizations. And then, I mean, it goes without saying, you know, you you got to get really good people around you in terms of your direct reports. But I also think as you go, as your organization scales. You do need to find that the make sure you find those opportunities to engage at all levels of your organization as well. And listening becomes much more important, I think, as you as you move up the organization. It sounds like an obvious statement to make, but the more distant, for example, I become from from certain aspects of execution, the more important it is for me to to just listen and engage with that level of the organization to, to remain current and make sure I'm still in touch with, um, with a business. And if you like what my team is trying to do on the front lines with, with their internal customers and what they're doing. So I think from a style point of view, as I've moved to larger organizations, the emphasis on, on listening has become much, much more important. And how do you synthesize all of the things, <laughs> you know, like if you're listening to all this, the stuff you you as the strategic leader need to synthesize and then kind of come out with like okay like there are major movements happening here and there's different words being used for them but i think this is the place that our org is is going do you carve out specific thinking and strategic time where you don't look at anything else Yes, and I, I've got I've certainly got better at doing that as well because you have to you have to find yourself that time to um, uh, almost breathe a bit and and take uh, take a check of where you're at today because I think well I think in all areas of business it's moving faster than it's ever moved before teams are expected to be more agile than ever before but unless you take those moments to just 
actually just reflect on actually what's been achieved and then what are those next steps so I think you have to try and carve out that that time so so I try and make space for myself to do that and also try and make space like I said to make sure I'm also engaging with the different levels within my organization as as well so and it goes back to the point I made earlier as well about the importance of trust and empowerment because there isn't enough hours in the day once your team gets so big or all the demands. So you, you've, you've really got to have that culture of, of uh, empowerment in, in your teams once they scale to a certain level. And well-documented roles and how do you measure this and like how will leaders four levels up experience the results of the thing that you're doing such that we could tell if it worked or not. And then you have the ownership as the leader of saying like, did I design that right? Or is this person, you know, actually failing, you know, because, you know, am I even measuring an appropriate thing to say whether or not that person is, is successful? So it's, it's like a lot of, a lot of pressure to bear on, on performance because, you know, we're, we'll all be asked at some point to call low performing people, maybe who aren't a good fit, but you do sit there and wonder, like, did I, is that because we didn't design that right? And set, did we set that person up for success? And uh, that's what I've always struggled with. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's no fun to let somebody go. <laughs> and, you know, you want to make sure that things go as, as well as you can, but you can't control all those variables. You, you can't. No, absolutely. And I mean, failure is an interesting thing as well. And I think you also have to look at culture of your team and, and to a point, say that a certain level of failure at times is okay on certain things fail quickly, learn from it. I think we've all, we've probably all heard, heard that before. And um, I think that's important because I mean, you've got to have that honesty and transparency in your organizations. Actually, this didn't work to allow you to pivot. I'd much rather that than someone trying to hide something. (laughs) Please, please pivot. Yeah, Yeah, right. Please pivot, but please just be honest and say, you know, we look at the metrics, this really didn't work. Yeah, we just burned up a couple million dollars and uh, we were wrong, you know, (laughs) but well, you know. there's failures and there's failures. Yeah, <laughs> a couple of million might might be a bit of an issue there. But yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. You know, like I'm not a big company guy anymore, but I know from the startup perspective, I always thought about it as you know, like your your level of experience, you know, seems to scale along with your ability to control the number of zeros attached to the mistake that you just made, you know, so, <laughs> and as your company gets bigger, you just make bigger and bigger mistakes, but they don't have as much impact, you know, it's so a thousand dollar mistake in your first few years of a business is, is terrible, but um, then ultimately you're, you know, like, well, we burned a grand. That's not, that's not too bad, <laughs> so, uh, but you're right. Yeah. Hopefully um, people who make million and dollar mistakes, they, uh, they have to be pretty far up the chain. So. So before I let you go, I always ask every guest, you know, kind of put on your futurist hat a little bit. You know, what are you thinking about and what ought the listeners to be thinking about next two years, you know, down the road, major trends or, you know, opportunities or place that, I don't know, you know, business is going, you know, kind of in general. I like to get all different thoughts around that idea. Yeah. So I think I think one of the things that I'm I'm really looking at and I think we're all trying to figure this out now is what our teams are going to look like in this, I like, I like to say post pandemic, I think we're still very much in it still, but goes without saying, right. You know, I think you're seeing this great reassessment with people changing, changing jobs, reevaluating their priorities in life. So 
how we lead our teams and how we run our our organizations or our businesses, I think going to be fundamentally different. And we're already seeing some of those changes. So I think that's one trend we've got to look at really, really carefully is, you know, how, how we how are how do our teams need to be structured differently? How do we need to support our employees differently? And then what are they looking for now from from life? It could be very different to how it how it was before. And I think we're already seeing that emerging right now. So I don't know if you have a perspective on that on that yourself. Well, you know, it's interesting being on the service provider side. It gives us a little bit more like opportunity. Is like we're largely you know sort of folks that provide contracted services or vendor services or things of that nature. And we serve very large companies. And I think it's an interesting opportunity on the flip side of workforce to just be like, okay, you used to say I would not outsource thing X. I must have them on my team. I want to have those people, you know, close to me, but like literally now the only distinction between any of us is the manner in which a tax form gets filed, you know, is it W-2 or is it 1099? Otherwise, we're all little poorly lit people in little boxes on screens with a camera working from our house. And if you look at it that way, you kind of go, so what's the difference if somebody's on your team or if somebody comes from a vendor? You know, I think like it's just this been like completely shattered difference of workforce. Now, I agree, like there's really good reasons that you might want to build up your own team, but I also think that agile companies need to pay very close attention to utilizing outsourced services, freelancers, you know, et cetera, because we can move faster than a big company. uh, And there's there's no doubt about it. You know, so when you talk about being agile, I think that it makes a hell of a lot more sense to hire experts, you know, out of the field as needed. You know, and I think that that's a better way to do do business. So obviously, I'm completely sort of biased in this because that's what we do. Right. But, you know. Yeah, I, I so that when you talk about changing nature of work, I just think that it, it's time to be honest about how we consume human time and services. And to go back to your point, like people are expecting different things from work. So maybe they want to have three or four, you know, big clients and not work uh, for one internal marketing team. And that could be valuable for all involved. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, I, I'm with you, by the way, you'll be pleased to know, you know, you've got to find uh, that, that hybrid, right? And, um, you know, manage those different peaks. The only way to do that is to have, um, is to think think about your team and the resources you need and, and how to scale them up and down and and respond with agility in that way. So, yeah, so that's something I'm, I'm really focused on. I, I think from a trends point of view on the, on the marketing side, I mean, you touched on it earlier. This is going to be the importance of, of marketing branding around, around talent. You know, there is, especially in the tech space, the uh, the shortage of of tech talent and attracting employees to your company, especially when we talk about people wanting to do different things now as well, is creating also um, an even uh, even more pressure, I think, on on the talent um, challenges for companies. So, from a marketing and branding point of view, um, I'm very very focused on on that with uh, with my team. Well, bless it, man. If you figure that out, you got to have come back on and. Tell everybody else because the, these are these are the big issues right now, and I, yeah, I completely agree. And really appreciate you, you know, coming on, giving giving the insights and and telling the stories. If anybody wants to reach out and you know connect with you, what's the best way to do that? 
probably the best way to do is, is following me probably on uh, on LinkedIn would be the best way they can they can reach out to me on uh, on that. Awesome. Well, Oliver, thanks so much for hanging out. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.